everyone and welcome. My name is Susan Bright. I'm the Managing Partner for the UK and Africa here at Hogan Lovells and leader of the Hogan Lovells Brexit Task Force. This is the seventh webinar in our series, Navigating the Negotiations. In our last webinar, we looked at some discrete issues that our clients have been focusing on, so contract continuity, insurance, and data. We're now nearly two years since the referendum and less than a year until Brexit Day on the 29th of March next year. There is a lot to be accomplished during that time. And today we're here to talk about international trade and how it will influence how Brexit is likely to take shape over the next month and indeed years. I'm joined by various members of the Hogan Lovells Brexit Task Force. So first, Lourdes Katrain, who co-leads the Hogan Lovells International Trade Practice. Secondly, uh, I'm particularly delighted to be joined by Aileen Doucin, a partner who's just joined us here in the UK uh, to focus on trade issues and to help clients deal with their increasing number of questions here in the UK. Thirdly, Jane Summerfield, who leads on Brexit issues in the life sciences sector. And finally, Andrew Eaton, who's a member of our public law and policy team, who spends all of his waking hours thinking about Brexit. So, in terms of our agenda today, our webinar is going to take us on a virtual world tour. We're going to start with Lourdes, who's in Brussels, with an overview of the trade aspects in the withdrawal agreement. We'll then head back here to London for an analysis of the UK's proposal for the future relationship, including uh, the latest customs proposals in the negotiations, the Customs Partnership, MaxFAC solution, and the most recent backstop proposal in relation to the border in Ireland. We'll then head to Geneva, the home of the World Trade Organization, or WTO, where there's another set of negotiations going on between the UK, the European Union, and the other WTO members about post-Brexit trade, post trade commitments which will potentially shape the terms on which the UK trades with much of the rest of the world once it has left the EU. And after that, we're off to Washington to look at the prospect of a post-Brexit US-UK trade agreement and consider what type of deal we might expect there. And finally, we're going to talk you through some real-life scenarios focusing on how changes in the UK's trade policy may affect businesses in the life sciences and aviation sectors, as well as the potential impact of Brexit on supply chains in general. So first off, I'm going to pass over to Lourdes in Brussels to discuss the status of the ongoing EU-UK negotiations. Lourdes. Thank you, Susan. So let's look at the trade aspects in the draft withdrawal agreement that was released on the 19th of March 2018. The agreement is meant to set out the terms and conditions for the UK withdrawal from the European Union. It will take account of the framework of the EU-UK future relationship, but it will not regulate that relationship, the terms of which will be negotiated once the UK has left the EU and will be covered by a separate agreement. The EU and the UK aim to reach a final withdrawal agreement by October 2018. The draft withdrawal agreement provides for a transitional period of 21 months that will start on the 30th of March 2019 and will end on the 31st December 2020. The UK will remain bound by both EU law and very importantly the EU's international agreements during this period. So, what does this mean? Well, firstly, it means that goods will continue to circulate freely between the EU and the UK until the end of the transitional period, just if the UK remains a member state of the European Union. In addition, goods that have lawfully been placed on the EU or UK markets before the end of the transitional period, so that is, before December 2020, will still be allowed to circulate in both markets afterwards until they reach their end user destination. The EU Customs Code will continue to apply to EU and UK goods 
moving between the EU and the UK, if the movement started before the end of the transition period and even if it ended afterwards. The EU Customs Code will continue to apply also to non-EU goods placed under temporary customs procedure before December 2020 and released for pre-circulation in the UK. Second, UK goods will continue to benefit from the EU's preferential free trade agreements until the end of the transitional period, just as if the UK remained a member state. The UK, very importantly, will be allowed to negotiate and even conclude its own free trade agreements with third countries during the transitional period, so as long as these free trade agreements enter into force only afterwards, that is, after December 2020. It is worth noting that the UK has already made contact with over 70 third country parties to existing EU free trade agreements with the aim of negotiating what is called the rolling over of these free trade agreements before or by the end of the transitional period. And a number of these third country parties, such as South Africa, have already expressed a strong interest in achieving such rolling over. Thank you very much, Lorda. So now can I turn to you, Aileen, and ask you if you could just take us through the UK's proposals for the EU-UK future relationship? Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Lourdes, and thank you very much, Suzanne. First of all, it's worth bearing in mind that what is and what has been discussed uh, by, by Lourdes applies to the withdrawal agreement and, and what the withdrawal condition for the UK to extract itself from, from the EU legal framework will, will look like. Now we are moving on to what will be the position from an EU and UK future economic relationship or partnership standpoint. And as I'm sure you will all know, since the decision of the UK to withdraw from the EU was communicated to the EU, the UK has been advocated, advocating sorry, in favor of, a, and I quote, deep and special partnership with the EU following Brexit. This is and still is the UK Prime Minister's uh, negotiating position as outlined in both Le the Lancaster House speech and mentions house speech. And as this slide will show, such a deep and special partnership is envisaged as building on three main pillars. First of all, an economic partnership that should go well beyond any existing free trade agreements that the EU and the UK as a member of the EU has currently negotiated. It will cover more sectors, both from a trade in goods, but also services perspective, and allow for a deeper cooperation between both parties. Second, a security partnership that will maintain and strengthen the party's ability to meet evolving threats, threats from an anti-terrorism, cyber security uh, standpoint, for instance. And last but not least, a cooperation pillar in cross-cutting areas such as data protection, for instance, which we have touched upon at our last webinar. With this in mind, let us now see in more detail how this vision for a deep and special partnership with the EU plays a role in the current and ongoing negotiations on customs cooperation. First of all, it's worth bearing in mind that subject to any transitional arrangement included in the withdrawal agreement, the EU rules that apply in the UK, of course, in the field of customs and indirect taxations that are VAT and excise duties will no longer apply to the UK on Brexit day. For this discussion concerning the future customs arrangements between the two parties have started, and are ongoing, both in the context of transition, first and foremost, but moving forward after uh, the transition period from sort of a, a post-Brexit perspective. And the main issue and the main objective in this regard for both the UK and the EU27 is to ensure a smooth and frictionless trade, as smooth and as frictionless as possible, once the UK will no longer be under the institutional and legal architecture of the EU customs union.
So let us look into each of the five options that are currently on the table, on the table sorry, and have been much debated starting from summer 2017 and in the developments that we have seen over the past few days. First of all, a customs partnership. As you will have recalled, this was detailed and published over the summer August 2017, sorry, last year, uh, and put forward by, by the UK government. This custom partnership is a so-called hybrid model between a customs union and a customs cooperation outside of the customs union that would allow the UK to have friction, frictionless trade with the EU, but while also being able to develop its own international trade policy. And under the partnership rules, UK government will be able and allowed to collect import duties on behalf of the EU, for, but only for goods reaching its border that would be destined for importation in the EU27. The proposal has been much debated over the past weeks and months, as it has raised some legal and still does raise some legal and practical considerations that are still to be discussed and ultimately resolved. The first one, and, and perhaps the most important one, is the legal ability for a non-EU member state to collect EU money, bearing in mind that customs duties are and, and remain one of the main sources of income for the EU as a legal entity, but let's, let's remember that it is also a source of income for the 28 member states. The second practical consideration in the implementation of a customs partnership is to what extent HMSE as customer authorities, but also the economic traders, will, be, um, find, will find sorry, difficulties in tracking and evidencing and destination of their products when such products are for destined for the EU27. And last but not least, there has been some discussion, and, and we know that uh, the UK government is uh, assessing very thoroughly the WTO legality of the scheme, especially in light of WTO rules of non-discrimination, national treatment, but also the rules that apply with respect to negotiating regional trade agree agreements, the so-called RTAs under the WTO legal framework. The second proposal, as I'm sure you will, will all know under the name of MAX-FAC, which stands for Maximum Facilitation, is envisaged as a highly streamed customs arrangement between the EU and the UK. It is not mutually exclusive from the customs partnership, but could work either independently or being built into the overarching framework of the customs partnership that I just described a bit, a bit before. It involves a customs border being pre created between the UK and the EU, but aims to create a border that is as frictionless again here as possible through the use of the adv of advanced technology. The idea will be that the UK will not need to apply the EU customs external tariffs or the EU rules of origin for goods entering the UK designed for the EU, but instead it will use technological tools, tools such as electronic pre-notification of goods crossing the border and um, the trusted trader schemes uh, for importers and exporters. And last week, you will, you will all have seen, I'm sure, that, that UK government has developed and is discussing a modified facts Max FAC, which aims at maintaining border checks between Northern Ireland and mainland Britain instead of checks at the North, Northern Irish border. Under this scheme, Northern Irish ports would be considered to be the entry point to the EU with respect to goods for which the UK has agreed to align standards with the EU. So all goods entering the Northern Ireland would be free to circulate in the Republic of Ireland without having to undergo a second border control. And last but not least again here, uh, the two proposals on uh, the backstop option. Uh, first, we will uh, look into the EU backstop, and second, the response uh, UK backstop. But first of all, what is the backstop? Of course, um, uh, for both parties, the EU27 and the UK, a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland must be avoided. And the need for a backstop option was inserted in the draft 
draft withdrawal agreement. So in practical terms to implement that backstop option, the EU has proposed a common regulatory area between the EU and Northern Ireland that would allow free movement of goods uh, across the border with the Republic of Ireland. And in the absence of other solutions, Northern Ireland would remain in the EU single market. In response, of course, the, the UK government published last week on the 7th of June uh, a UK alternative backstop which envisages that the UK remains aligned to EU rules until a new customs relationship is agreed between the two parties. And that takes us back to the custom partnership and the max pack option that I've just discussed a few minutes ago. And now I will pass on to my colleague, Andrew, who will apply and look at these principles and how those apply in the Irish conundrum. Thanks, Aline. In order to understand the problem at the border, we need to remember that the EU exists, among other things, to break down two types of barriers to trade, tariff and non-tariff barriers. It does this via the customs union and the single market. The Irish border problem is therefore Brexit in a microcosm, how do you ensure frictionless trade between the UK and the EU, and specifically Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, while at the same time being outside the single market and customs union? The UK has proposed to achieve both, but has as yet failed to propose a workable solution for the end state. As Aline explained, the UK and the EU are currently trying to agree a backstop that would come into effect in the event that they fail to agree a long-term solution by the end of the transitional period in December 2020. They have not yet agreed what this backstop will look like, but both the UK and the EU backstop proposals involve Northern Ireland remaining in the customs union and the single market in some shape or form as a temporary measure while the parties continue to negotiate the UK's end stay. What the UK government has so far refused to concede publicly is that entirely frictionless trade without any physical infrastructure at the border may not be possible unless it remains in both the single market and the customs union to a large extent. A good comparator is Turkey, which is in a customs union with the EU, but not in the single market. Importing across the EU-Turkey border still involves a number of checks, including for the origin of the products, to which, if they are, not from, a, if they are from a third country, the common customs tariff is applied at that point. They also check imports for counterfeiting, piracy and other intellectual property violations, drugs control, sanitary and cytosanitary requirements, environmental requirements, product safety, cultural goods trafficking, money laundering, etc. These checks have to happen somewhere. At the moment they happen when they first enter the UK, which means they don't have to happen again when travelling between the UK and the rest of the EU. But if the, UK, sorry, if the EU can no longer rely on the UK to undertake these checks as a member of the EU, or the UK adopts different checks, it's highly likely that the EU will want to conduct these checks themselves, itself. So, unless a new bespoke technological solution can be found to get around this issue, the UK is going to have to make a choice. What does it want more? Maintain entirely frictionless trade with the EU by staying in the customs union and to a large extent the single market, but at the risk of becoming a rule taker, or leave the single market and the customs union to steer its own path post-Brexit, but at the risk of adding some border friction to its trade with the EU. The question goes to the heart of the UK government's Brexit strategy, and its failure so far to choose is stalling the negotiations. The UK Parliament could yet force the government to make a choice, with a number of amendments to the EU Withdrawal Bill and the Trade Bill concerning the UK's commitment to negotiating staying in the customs union coming up for debate over the summer, in particular in, the, in relation to the EU Withdrawal Bill this week in the House of Commons. Whatever happens in those votes, unless until the UK government makes its choice between these two options, the talks are unlikely to progress and the risk of a no-deal scenario remains. Andrew, thank you. Um, we'll now go back to, to Lourdes to talk us through um, what's on the menu in Geneva. Lourdes. Thank you. Well, a bit of action in Geneva as far as this um, EU-UK negotiations is concerned. Let's start, you know, with the tariff-free quotas. So, as you know, the EU and the UK are original members of the World Trade Organization. 
and the EU Service of Concessions and Commitments under the various WTO agreements currently apply to all the 28 member states, including the UK. The UK will remain a WTO member following its withdrawal from the EU and will therefore need to have its own separate session of commitments for goods and services. The EU has made clear that its obligations will remain unchanged under the WTO agreements, and the UK has communicated that it intends to replicate as far as possible its obligations under the current commitments of the EU. However, they both have indicated that the 100 or so existing EU tariff rate quotas will require certain adjustments to reflect the UK's withdrawal from the European Union. So, tariff rate quotas introduce a two-tier tariff regime for certain commodities, mostly in the agricultural sector, and pretty important for the UK economy. You know, we're talking about tariff rate quotas on cheese, beef, or sugar. And under these tariff rate quotas, imports within the quota enter at a lower tariff rate, while imports beyond the quota are subject to a higher tariff rate. The administration of these tariff rate quotas can be done in a number of ways, such as, for instance, first-come, first-served basis. A second option would be through auctioning or through allocation based on past import data. That's what we call historical allocation of tariff rate quotas. The apportionment of the EU tariff rate quotas between the EU and the UK is becoming a source of tension within WTO trading partners that consider that it will necessarily result in limiting their market access both to the EU and to the UK markets. So, moving on to how to allocate these tariff rate quotas between the EU and the UK. Um, the, the new EU, UK set of concessions will need to be approved by the 163 WTO members. The UK has stated that it intends to replicate its current obligations under the EU set of concessions through the so-called technical rectification procedure, rather than the so-called modification procedure. The, the difference between the two procedures for making changes is that the technical ratification, as its name indicates, can be used for rearrangements that actually do not alter the scope of the commitments, thereby only requiring that no WTO member objects to this change, whereas the modification procedure entails a substantive change of concessions and therefore requires rounds of negotiations with other WTO members having a substantial interest in any of the affected concessions and potential compensation in the form of new concessions. The EU and the UK originally considered that a simple calculation of the UK's share of the EU tariff rate quotas could be transposed into the UK new service of concession through the technical ratification procedure, which would avoid lengthy negotiations and potential comp compensations to other WTO members. And that's exactly what they proposed to the, to the WTO partners in a joint letter from October 2017, which they reallocated EU tariff rate quotas on the basis of existing trade flows under each tariff line. The US, another big agri-producer, such as Brazil, Argentina, Canada, New Zealand, Uruguay, Thailand, strongly opposed this solution by stressing that the modification of the EU tariff rate quotas cannot credibly be achieved through a technical ratification and that none of these arrangements should be modified without their agreement. So, what to expect? Well, uh, the position of the European Union has evolved since uh, you know, certain WTO members have rejected the technical ratification solution. While the UK's position seems to be continuous sticking to this technical ratification model, 
we're supposed to avoid time and resource consuming negotiations with other WTO members while it has to negotiate its future relationship with the EU. The EU is getting up to propose a new set of global negotiations. So what the European Commission has um, released is a proposal for a negotiating mandate through a so-called council decision, which once approved by the EU member states, will allow the European Commission to launch full-blown renegotiations for each of the sensitive agricultural products subject to tariff rate quotas. Very importantly, the, this council decision will also allow the UK to start its own renegotiations before the start of the transitional period. So that is to say, before the UK ceases to be a member of the European Union and, and is allowed to conduct its own free trade negotiations. In parallel, and conscious of the fact that the renegotiations of the tariff rate quotas could be lengthy and may not be finalized before the end of the transitional period. So the European Commission is drawing up what we call a fallback option for a proposal for a regulation that would result in a unilateral apportionment of the EU tariff rate quotas. Such apportionment would, would be based on historical trade flows over a three-year uh, historical period. It's expected to be 2013 to 2015. Where no trade is observed for a, for a specific tariff rate quota, it would be based either on the usage share of another tariff rate quota with an identical product definition or on EU imports in the corresponding tariff line outside the tariff rate quota. Although the European Commission claims that these solutions will guarantee that the other WTO members' current level of EU market access remains unchanged, a number of WTO members, very importantly Brazil, have already warned that they would challenge any attempt from the EU to unilaterally modify its tariff rate quotas. Thank you, Lourdes. And turning again to Aileen, could you talk to us about um, the UK's trade with the EU's existing third country partners? Sure, sure. Uh, thank you, Suzanne. And, and first of all, I'd like to, to highlight um, and, and come back to a point that was made just at the beginning of this, of this webinar. Uh, and I know that it's, it's a point very important for a number of economic operators and traders that are listening to, to, this, to this webinar. During the transitional period, the UK remains and will be bound by the obligations arising from existing EU free trade agreements and should continue to comply with EU trade policy, of course. That means that UK goods will continue to benefit from preferential treatment under existing EU free trade agreements until the end of the transitional period, just as if the UK was and remains an EU member state. Uh, however, the UK will be free to negotiate sign and ratify new free trade agreements in its own capacity so long as those agreements do not enter into force or start applying during the transitional period. So in practical terms, what we envisage is, of course, long-standing negotiations and from the day the transition applies, uh, the following day, the new agreement that will have been negotiating, negotiated sorry, during the transition will start entering into force. That is um, what we envisage, but as lawyers, we always know that things can be a bit more complicated when it comes to trade negotiations. Uh, indeed, as the UK, the UK leaves the EU, it will be a third country, and it will not be covered by those three tender agreements that the EU negotiated, concluded, and signed whilst being a member of the EU. This is because EU free trade agreements apply in principle to the territories to which the EU treaties apply and have been concluded by the EU as a whole, i.e. Um, the Commission under a mandate given by the EU 28 member states under uh, its exclusive competence in the areas of trade. And after Brexit, the EU treaties do not, will not apply to the UK. So in principle, the UK will have to sign and negotiate new trade agreements with all the countries that have concluded trade agreements with the EU. 
and we mentioned trade, but of course these discussions apply in other uh, treaties negotiated by uh, the EU on behalf of the member states. And in this respect, several FDs have been proposed to ensure that minimum disruption from both a legal and a trade perspective arise. Uh, first of all, the UK has suggested for an interpretative solution in existing EU trade agreements to the effect that it would be legally possible for the word EU and EU member states to be interpreted to include the UK as well. Second, the UK, of course, and some parties have uh, already indicated that during transition, but also perhaps moving forward after transition, they would be willing to roll over what was negotiated by the EU on behalf of the EU28. This would mean that the commitments and the obligations agreed in the existing EU agreements with the third country concerns will just apply going forward as if uh, nothing happened. However, uh, this this is, of course, a very practical solution, but of course we are aware that a number of trading partners have indicated either to the Commission already or to the UK government that they would want to reopen some specific aspect of the negotiations post-transition. And as I'm sure you will have followed from a number of press reports that were published over the past few weeks, uh, even in the context of transition, the EU Commission has indicated that the letter that it, asking, that it will send to third countries asking them to roll over trade agreements during the transition will not be set, sent until after the UK has signed the withdrawal agreement depending on uh, where that date um, uh, will be set out, it might only give uh, the UK a matter of weeks to get things sorted. But of course, that discussion applies to um, trade agreement, uh, countries for which, uh, countries sorry, which benefit from a trade agreement with the EU as uh, things stand today. But there are a number of trading partners, including long-standing trading partners uh, for the UK, that do not currently enjoy trade agreements with the EU. And for those, there is scope to enter and sign and negotiate, even during transition, a new and ambitious trading relationship. And I will now pass on the floor again to my colleague Lourdes, who will talk about the U.S.-U.K. trade relationship. Thank you, Aline. Uh, you know, talking about U.S. trade relations this morning, regardless of whether they are with the U.K., with Canada, another country with which the U.S. appears to have had historical special relationship, the EU or China, is really a challenging really, really challenging. Well, so um, let's imagine, you know, how the UK-US relationship, you know, could be shaped. And, and let's perhaps, you know, focus on the important lessons that can be drawn from the long negotiations between the EU and the US on the so-called Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, otherwise known as TTIP. Uh, which finished just shortly after President Trump was um, elected. So during these lengthy trade negotiations, a big part of the discussions between the EU and the U.S. negotiators revolved around the different regulatory standards that apply in each side of the Atlantic. And Jane will shed some light in a moment. Um, this intense debate you know, illustrates the fact that there are very distinct sanitary and phytosanitary measures between the EU and the US. And for the EU, these play a very significant role in the shaping of the EU trade policy, and they are an integral part of EU trade agreements. And so currently, the US worldwide trade relations, you know, um, as is obvious from, from the general press, are at a critical point. Uh, following the imposition of President Trump's additional tariffs of steel and aluminium, um, which now have been applied to the European Union, including the UK, as of 1st of June. Uh, not surprisingly, at least for us trade lawyers, the reaction of Prime Minister May has been very much aligned to the reaction of 
the European Trade Commissioner, the European and the President of the European Council and the European Commission. Uh, Prime Minister May called these US measures as unjustified and deeply disappointing. And basically these measures show is the potential different oriented trade agenda between the EU, the UK and the US. And, and as I referred at the beginning, another US traditional ally such as Canada. So the future UK-US relationship, you know, is, is just likely to be affected by the various uh, wars that the US has um, initiated. And, and, you know, and they include, um, you know, not only the European Union, but uh, Canada, China, and, and very recently, uh, another, another front that has been opened, which can affect, you know, the UK economy. That is the ongoing U.S. investigation on the national security threat that resulting from imports of cars into the U.S. Uh, so that is again a national security. It will affect all of the of all of the imports of cars into the U.S. And to complicate matters further, the EU and the U.K. is very supportive of the EU position. Uh, you know, decided to adopt uh, the so-called, you know, rebalancing measures or to neutralize the negative effects that these U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminium are causing. And they have also offered, uh, you know, to resume the EU-U.S. trade negotiations. So let's call it, you know, the mini TTIP or a free trade agreement with limited scope and that will only be uh, focused on the reduction of industrial tariffs. Uh, there appears to have been no progress on this trade initiative. It will be very interesting to see how events as far as U.S. trade policy unfold over the coming months and how the U.K. You know, will intend to take uh, up or, or what now seems to be a very, very difficult uh, trade relationship with the U.S. Thank you. Thank you, Lourdes. Um, and I think that gives us all a, a, an overview of some really very challenging issues when you're thinking about it uh, at that sort of level. What I'd like to do now is to um, provide some more granularity with some case studies where we'll look at um, particular industry sectors and therefore um, the challenges that this brings um, in those areas. So first of all, Jane, bring you into the conversation. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about the impact of all of this in the life sciences area, which is obviously highly regulated and very challenging in itself. Indeed. Thanks, Susan. So as you'll all be aware, the life sciences sector is, um, is very highly regulated. It has very complex supply chains. And so the potential implications of Brexit um, are, are very relevant for, for the sector in many ways. So the map on, that you can see on the slide here um, shows an example of a typical supply chain. Um, it may look very complex, but actually this is probably a simplified version. Um, and just very briefly, the idea is that raw materials come into China, um, visit various different countries within the UK and the remainder of the EU at different manufacturing stages, and are released from the UK over to a distributor in Germany. And this is a pretty typical scenario. The UK Industry Association has done some modelling around uh, supply chains incorporating the UK and the EU and found that typically uh, products will cross the EU-UK border between three or four times within that supply chain. So obviously currently all of that movement is within the EU, but post-Brexit there will be a number of transactions across the new border. The industry's primary concern is actually around the non-tariff barrier elements of trade, so things such as delays um, and additional release testing requirements at the border are particularly problematic for medicines, many of which have uh, time-critical supplies or need cold storage, so can't be sitting in lorries at border posts for days on end. In terms of the trade barriers um, and tariffs in, in particular, the, the industry needs to take a, it was looking for a two-pronged approach from the UK government, and I will explain that in terms of the the first element is looking for zero tariffs under the whatever trade arrangement is agreed between the EU and the UK going forward, and, and that's essentially maintaining the current position. Now, one element that the industry is preparing for is if we end up in a position where the UK is trading on WTO rules post-Brexit for any period of time, there is a, an existing pharmaceutical tariff elimination agreement, which means that for EU member states and countries such as the US, Canada, Canada Japan, Australia, certain finished medicines and certain ingredients are also subject to 0% tariffs currently. 
whereas some other markets such as Brazil, China and Russia have tariffs varying for between 1% and 15%. But even if no agreement is reached between the EU uh, and the UK going forward and the UK reverts to WTO rules, the UK government believes that the UK will still be able to trade with the EU on the basis of zero tariffs for those certain finished products and ingredients which are covered under the Pharmaceutical Tariff Elimination Agreement. However, that list is relatively limited, uh, and current estimates are there are around 1,500 different pharmaceutical products and medicines that would not be covered under that list. The one element that the government will need to look at is how to help expand that list, and there have been uh, a number of ongoing negotiations to do so since about 2010, but the US has currently been uh, blocking those to, to a degree, so progress has been slow. But to give you some kind of uh, cost idea of, of the implications of those tariffs, so AstraZeneca recently um, published an estimate of the effect that they thought that those increases in tariffs would have on its business, and it thought there would be tariff increases in the range of 4 to 6.5% for a number of its products, and probably costing it in the region of about $30 million a year extra. So in terms of what the sector is looking for going forward from the negotiations, very much for zero tariffs to remain between the EU and the UK, but also for the WTO element to be addressed by the UK government and negotiations on the pharmaceutical list to be progressed in parallel. Thank you, Jane. Um, I'm turning again to Andrew. Andrew, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the aviation sector? Yes, thanks, Susan. Uh, from a trade law perspective, the aviation sector is affected by Brexit in two key ways, or for two key reasons. The highly integrated cross-border supply chains that aerospace companies use with EU-wide economies of scale, very similar to the life sciences sector. And secondly, the importance of the EU's regulatory framework, known as the Single European Sky, which has revolutionized European air travel in the last 20 to 30 years. So first, taking supply chains. The UK's participation in the WTO agreement on trade in civil aircraft means there is little risk of tariffs being introduced. However, much like this, uh, the life sciences sector, any delay or bureaucracy introduced due to customs checks at the EU-UK border could make the aerospace sector less competitive globally, particularly because of the just-in-time nature of their supply chains. For example, Airbus, whose cross-border supply chains mean it builds wings in northern Wales and Gloucestershire uh, for aircraft assembled in France and Germany, recently announced that it was considering stockpiling parts to mitigate possible disruption to its manufacturing processes caused by delays at Dover. As the negotiations progress, aerospace businesses will need to be alive to the risk of increased friction in supply chains as a result of a hard Brexit in particular, and should consider whether and how they can best manage this, including possibly by restructuring their supply chains. Secondly, on harmonized rules, at the moment, the UK is highly integrated into the EU's regulatory framework with common rules on everything from pilot licenses to safety standards, including being a full member of the European Aviation Safety Agency, known as EASA. Participation in the single European sky, particularly safety certification of aircraft by EASA, also gives UK aerospace companies easy access to global markets, notably via the bilateral aviation safety agreements in place between EASA and its counterparts in the US, Canada and Brazil. The UK government has announced that it will seek to continue to remain a member of EASA. EASA already has associate members who are not members of the EU, but these countries do not have voting rights, and this would also mean very likely signing up to the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union as the ultimate arbiter of EASA's rules. In other words, the UK risks becoming a rule taker. But on the other hand, not signing up to EASA could result in a significant increase in bureaucracy for airlines and aerospace businesses who would effectively need to ensure they comply with both regimes. Nothing is yet agreed, and as we know, those issues for the UK are red lines, so it will, it will take uh, a serious effort to come to a negotiated solution. But the significant downsides of the UK and EU failing to reach a deal in aviation which could in theory result in flights being unable to cross the UK EU uh, into UK EU airspace and supply chains grinding to a halt should focus the minds of policymakers to find that solution. Andrew, thank you. And then turning to Aileen, can you help us more generally on supply chain issues? Of course, and, and perhaps what 
what uh, both Jane and Andrew just, just mentioned highlights uh, that one of the most challenging aspects of Brexit, of Brexit sorry, is managing your group's supply chain structure. And the reasons for this are numerous, and they will apply cross-sector, be it the aviation, life science, automotive, or any of the sectors that both trade goods, but also services with the EU27 and, and the UK. So there are a number of, of difficult points that Brexit highlights in the context of restructuring or structuring of your supply chain um, uh, system. First is, of course, the uncertainty with respect to post-Brexit customs arrangements. And you will now know, because we discussed that a few minutes ago, that the customs partnership, MaxFAC, modified MaxFAC, will have impact on whatever it is that you trade with the EU27. The second point is, of course, the broad range of industry-specific regulatory considerations that apply for you as economic operators, both with the UK and trading both with the UK and the EU27. Also, the question mark over the mobility of talent, but also mobility of professional services. And think of pilots, lawyers, architects, accountants, dentists, and others. And of course, the uniqueness of your supply chain and the fact that there is no one size fits all. So now what I want you to do is just take one step um, uh, back and think, for instance, about CE marking compliance. If the products that you place on the EU market require the intervention of a notified body, post-Brexit, you will be required subject any other preferential arrangements to held a certificate issued by, the, by an EU27 notified body. Another consequence, if you trade goods that are subject to product-specific regulations, will be that some economic operators that intervene in the trading of your products might see their designation change under CE marking legislations and their relevant obligations will subsequently change. For instance, an EU distributor established in the UK will become an importer under EU um, marking legislation in relation to the products that it will place on the EU market as from UK withdrawal date. So the question is, what should you be doing now? And, and uncertainty with respect to intricacies of Brexit negotiation, negotiation sorry, sorry, and the challenges outlined above should not lead to inertia. Many multinationals have taken and are taking significant steps to assess what Brexit means for their own tailored supply chain. This includes the following, but it is not an exhaustive list. Reviewing your existing operation models, operating models, designing and assessing your customs assessments, assessing location and perhaps relocation uh, uh, consideration across various elements of your group supply chain, reviewing your um, supply, supply agreements and contractual negotiations with your EU counterparties. Thank you, Aileen. And just to finish up this section, can I come back to you, Jane? Could you just share some thoughts on um, differing international approaches to regulation? I can indeed. Um, they're probably very neatly summed up by the word chickens, which I will expand on in a moment. So obviously, one of the unique features of the UK-EU trade negotiations is that both parties are starting from a position of having a highly harmonised, near-identical regulatory framework. Whereas to go to Lord's point from earlier, one of the key challenges in negotiating a closer trading relationship between the UK and the US is likely to be that the US and the UK take fundamentally different approaches to regulation. So this difference is quite neatly summed up by the quote that you can see on screen from the former EU Trade Commissioner Pascal Lamy. And the EU is generally regarded as being more risk averse of taking an approach which is based on the precautionary principle whereas in general the U.S. is regarded as slightly less risk-averse, more open to new technologies, and also giving greater weight to the economic impact of new regulation. 
Now, quite often in practice, what you actually find is that the US and the EU reach very similar endpoints, but they tend to take very different approaches to get there. So one example which is very frequently mentioned in that context is chickens, uh, and in particular chlorinated chickens. So the US approach to rearing chickens is you can rear them any way you want, and then you clean them up at the end of the process so they're safe for people to eat. Whereas the EU approach is you should always use a process of rearing, which means you don't need to clean them at the end. And I think that's a very good example of, of how the two, two different philosophical approaches work. And obviously that makes trading in chickens between the US and the UK very difficult. Now, chickens are one example, but the US and the UK differ in a number of different areas of regulation, so use of hormones in meat production, um, approaches to genetically modified organisms, uh, endpoints for clinical trials, different environmental standards, the list goes on. Um, interestingly, in some areas, the US is actually more risk-averse than the EU. And examples there are things like nuclear power, uh, consuming unpasteurized cheese, things like use of toys and sweets. But ultimately, if the UK wants closer trading ties with the US, it's going to need to consider whether to accept the US approach in at least some areas. Um, and the differences that you see between the, the UK and the US often arise in areas where there's strong public opinion or strong domestic interests. And of course, those are probably the hardest areas for any government to make concessions on in the course of a trade negotiation. Thank you very much. And just to finish off, um, for further help and guidance, please do visit our dedicated Brexit hub, which is at hogandoubles.com forward slash Brexit. So this contains all of our latest thinking on the legal issues about Brexit. And you can also sign up for our regular Brexit bulletin emails, which are on the hub, and you can use the button, which is at the bottom of the page. We will be holding um, further webinars in this series, so please look out for communications about those. And also, this webinar will be available very soon as a podcast. Finally, as always, if you want to discuss how Brexit might impact your business and how you can best prepare, then do get in touch with us. You can contact a member of our Brexit task force, or you can email brexit at hoganlovels.com. So finally, thank you, Lourdes, Aileen, Jane, and Andrew, for joining me today. Thank you to all of you uh, for listening, and do please join us next time. So thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>